Well, I'm pulling the rug out from all of us this morning. Actually, it's the Holy Spirit that's pulling the rug out from all of us this morning. Uh, according to the schedule, I'm supposed to be on Isaiah chapter 18, 19, and 20. And as early as Thursday of this week and as late as about 6 o'clock this morning, I have been struggling. God, I just really want to preach this other thing. Is it okay? Is this what you're saying to me? And I can't explain to you, because I don't know what your personal experience is, but when God tells me something, in my heart, I sense this beating in my chest, of my, 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 my heart, that's, it's kind of like a, a flutter, if you will, that I can tell that it's God that's prompting whatever that's going on in my world. And as I was praying about Isaiah chapter 6, 18, 19, and 20, I was just flat. There was just no prompting or leading. And I'm like, well, this is where I'm supposed to be, God. But then I was reading in my personal devotions another, cha- another thing, another verse. And all of a sudden, my heart just started. And I was like, wow, I need to really meditate on this. And so I spent the rest of the week thinking about that and chewing on it and meditating. And then it came time yesterday. Somebody said to me at the, at the farewell party for my friend who's leaving. And another pastor came up and said, so what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, well, that's the question of the hour. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, this is the struggle I'm dealing with. This is what I'm supposed to preach on, but I don't feel that I'm supposed to do that tomorrow. I really feel like I'm supposed to do this. And he said, well, what are you sensing? And I said, well, every time I turn around so far this evening, I keep hearing the same thing. And it's this sermon over here. And he said, well, then go with it. I was like, okay. So I got up this morning at 6 o'clock. I was like, did I miss it, God? Or am I supposed to do this one or not? I don't know. But I know that I know that I know. As I stand here, by the, now that I've prayed through on it, I know that this is from God. Now, it may be that I'm the one that has to hear the words, and you just have to tough it out while I process through. It may be that the words I'm about to say are going to be uh, for one person in this room. And again, the rest of us are just going to have to tough it out. I don't know. I, I said earlier in the service, I have an expectation that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to do something and speak something into somebody's life. I have no idea who it's for. It might just be for me, but I know that I know that I know that this is what the word, this is the word that God wants spoken in his house this morning. And so if you will turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 7. And we will be looking at the first 10 verses. You can also put your thumb in at Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Luke chapter 7, Matthew chapter 8. Let's read. The first 10 verses of chapter 7 of Luke. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus... They pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. 
That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at these verses too because there's, some, there's, there's just a little bit of difference and I want to, I want to emphasize it. So, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5. Um, and then uh, 5 through 13, excuse me. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, a centurion came to him. And the difference is, is that the centurion didn't come to Jesus in 7 of Luke. Asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For, by, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom of kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now turning back to seven, because that's where I'm going to stay. Um... How in the world can you amaze Jesus? Isn't he God? Doesn't he know everything? But as we think about Christ, he is fully divine and fully human. And I can't explain that. It's a mystery. No human being has ever been able to explain that. But somehow, someway, the fullness of the divine knew that centurion. The fullness of the human in Christ was surprised. Astonished, it was one of the translations that I saw. Because of the faith of someone who was on the fringes. In neither one of these transactions, Matthew or Luke, do we read that this centurion was a follower of God. You know, in, in, in Acts chapter 10, we read about the centurion uh, Cornelius. And Cornelius was actually a believer in Jehovah. He hadn't converted to Judaism, but he was a Gentile believer in Jehovah. And then God sent Peter to his house. But this centurion in Capernaum, we have no indication that he is a follower of Jehovah. All we know is that he is honored by the people of the village. They say he is worthy of you coming and doing for him because he has done good things for us, for our people. Including and up to, he actually built the synagogue for us to worship in. So he's worth your time, Jesus. And then when 
The man apparently heard that Jesus was coming. He sent some of his other servants and said, tell him I'm not worthy for him to come into my house. All I need him to do is speak the word. I know that that alone, my servant will be healed. And that, that was the that was the thing that, that struck me as I was reading earlier this week and I was gripping. I said, he's worthy, but he's not worthy. He's worthy for Jesus to come to his house and do a miracle. But he's not worthy to have Jesus come to his house. How does that work? And as I, as I looked at it, as I thought about it, I realized that the, the words of acclamation saying that he was worthy and, and, and come from the, the Jewish leaders. This guy... Of all the people, he might not be a Jew, but he's worth your time, Jesus. Because he's good to us. He treats us nice. He does good things for your people. You des- he deserves to have you come and work a miracle in his life. But the man who deserved to have Jesus come and do a miracle in his life, in his own heart of hearts, said, I'm not worthy. You don't need to come to my house. I mean, there was, I've read different, different commentators said, well, he was concerned about Jesus' reputation because, you know, Jesus, if he went into the house of a non-believer, into the house of a Gentile, he'd make himself ceremonially unclean, and that would be a problem. But the thing is, is that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8, had just healed a leper by touching the leper, so he was already unclean. So that's kind of a bogus, I think, thought. Why would Jesus not want to go to this guy's house? Jesus didn't care about that kind of stuff. He didn't focus on that kind of stuff. He ministered to where the needs were. But the more that I thought about it, the more I I, I was wondering, why is this gripping me so much? And why am I chewing on this so much? And I realized this passage of Scripture, especially the Matthew one, this is the passage of Scripture where in the Roman Catholic Mass, there is a part of the liturgy that goes all the way back to the time of my being a little, little kid, where I'm in in, in a place where I'm worshiping God, where my family took me to worship God, and in one of the holiest moments of the service, the priest stands at the high altar, and he holds up a piece of bread. And he holds it up before the congregation and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that moment, in the service, the people then respond, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come into my house, but only say the word, and my soul will be healed. Think about the intimacy of that statement. The, wor- the worship leader, the priest, stands before the people and says, Here is your hope of salvation, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for you. And the very first response I'm not worthy for you to come in. But if you'll just speak the word, 
I know that my soul will be healed. That's why this gripped me so much this week. Because it is one of the most intense, intimate, holy things for me. When I'm about to receive the Eucharist, when I'm about to receive Christ, for me to look inside and go, no, I'm not worthy for that. But now let me take a step to the side and tell you, that's wonderful and glorious and deeply rich for me spiritually. But there's another part of this that really eats at me. You see, in 1975, in the driveway of a woman named Ginger Francis at 11.30 p.m., Bob Sugden gave his heart and life and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I confessed my sins. I repented of my sins. I accepted Christ as my Savior. I felt the peace of Christ wash over me. And I have, from that day until this, walked in fellowship with God. And my guilt was gone. You look at the theology. The theology says when you become a Christian, you're made just as if you had never sinned. The guilt is gone. The the slate is wiped clean. But for the better part of 30 years of my Christian walk, I walked as a shameful Christian. I am not worthy of God's love. Look at all the vile and heinous things I've been guilty of. And so I struggled to receive the love of Christ, even though it was poured out on me graciously and without any concern. Just showed the kids the rubber ball. God treats me the same as he treats anyone. The best saint and the vilest sinner and wherever I happen to fall in between, God loves me just the same. He treats me just the same. He desires me just the same. So why, Bob, do you struggle with this sense of shame and worthlessness? unworthy to receive him, to have him be part of my life. Oh God, if you only knew how bad I've been, you wouldn't even want me. Well, Bob, wake up. I know how bad you were. I saw it all and I still want you. But God, you don't understand. I'm horrible. I'm a rotten sinner. And then we sing these lovely Christian songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I don't focus on the grace. I focus on the fact that I'm a wretch. And I'm a worm. And I'm dirt. And I'm not worthy of his love. And I walk around with this darkness and this, oh, I'm such a bad person, and oh God, how could you ever love me? But I walked into freedom in 1975, but I carry a cloud of shame for 30 years? That doesn't make sense. But you see, the enemy's job is to steal and to kill and to destroy and to do anything the enemy can do to thwart the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so, I don't remember the exact date, 
it was like 19, 2001, 2002, and I've shared this with you. I went down to an altar of prayer during a worship, during a, a, a revival service, and I got down on my knees at the altar and I prayed and I said, Jesus, I do not want there to be any emotions here. I don't want there to be any tears here. I don't want people coming behind me and patting me on the back and praying for me. This is just you and me. God, I know that I'm a Christian. I know that I am in right relationship with you. I know that I live a holy life before you. I know that I'm in Bible college preparing to serve you with all that I am for the rest of my life. But I am carrying this baggage that I can't let go of. And it is debilitating to me, God. And I want to walk away from this altar and leave it here at your feet. Will you please take this burden from me? And I handed him my shame. And I walked away in freedom. And so I now, from 2001 or two, I don't remember the exact date, for the last 15 years or, or 14 years, I now truly walk as one who is free, righteous, holy. And I feel no, ugh. I feel no, oh, I'm a bad, oh, I feel... Literally, if you will notice, I have a red watch band on that pretty much stays on all the time. And I wear red clothes. And there, I have a pair of red Crocs. I couldn't wear red before 2001. Because every time I tried to wear red, I felt uncomfortable. And you've heard this story, I think, too, but I, I, in my mother's eye, she thought I had deceived her by telling her I had to have a red shirt for a choir concert. When the choir director had said to us we had to have either a red shirt or a pastel blue or a pastel yellow or a pastel pink shirt, and I had determined I didn't want to wear pastel anything, so I needed a red shirt. So I came home and said, Mom, we have to have a shirt for choir. It has to be a red one. She said, okay. Well, the night of the concert comes, and we're standing in the foyer waiting for the concert to start, and my friends show up, and one's wearing a yellow shirt, and one wearing a blue shirt. My mom said, where's your red shirts? And I said, we didn't have to wear a red shirt. And she said, what? She said, no, we could wear pink or blue or yellow or red. And my mother looked at me with this, I can't believe you lied to me. Guilt and shame that I shouldn't have owned. But because I lied to my mother and deceived her, I was vile and dirty and nasty and I had sinned against her. And as a result, I couldn't wear red for 30 plus years. I had been forgiven of everything and I didn't even in that case, I hadn't even tried to lie to her. I wasn't trying to deceive her. I just innocently made a choice and forgot to mention the fact that I'd already processed that choice. And I just announced to her my choice. I didn't give her the paper. So it wasn't an intentional deception. It's just the way it worked out. But she thought that I had lied and deceived her and there was no fixing that. And as a result, I couldn't wear red. But once the shame was removed by Jesus Christ in 2001 or 2002, I love wearing the color red. And people tell me I look good in the color red. And I walk proudly in my red. 
And I didn't understand any of that until a few years after this all happened. Somebody, my wife, I think it was, said, you're wearing red. You don't normally wear red. And I started thinking about it, and I realized I was free. I was free, not just to wear red, but I was free. I am not a slug. I am not a worm. I am not a wretch. I am a child of the living God who walks in freedom because of the grace of Christ, because of the blood that was shed for me, and I don't have to continually go, Oh God, I'm not worthy to have you come into my life. Just say the word and my soul will be healed. That was done and over with. It's no longer something that I need to carry. And if you listen to today's contemporary music, you will hear over and over and over again words telling you what a worm you are, what a slug you are, how you are not worthy of the love of God. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And yes, they can point to this scripture and say, well, we're just talking about what scripture talks about. Well, I'm sorry, that's taking it out of context. This was a man who was not in right relationship with the Father. This was a man who was, who was not antagonistic to Jewish people, but he was, not antagoni- he was not in right relationship with God. He was a sinner, and he knew he wasn't worthy to have the Messiah of all Messiahs come into his home. And yes, it is a holy and intimate thing to be real before God and to say, God, before I take communion, I need to make sure that my life is right before you. I need to make sure that there is absolutely nothing that would bar me from having right, right, right access to you. But when I sit in righteousness, I don't need to worry about frowns from God. And I don't need to worry about feeling unworthy or shamed because it doesn't exist anymore. It's broken. That was destroyed when Jesus died on the cross and when I received that forgiveness and I don't need to walk in that anymore. And so I would ask you to be discerning. Do not let contemporary culture tell you that you are not worthy of God's love. Do not let the enemy try to convince you that you still carry around things that are not worthwhile. Because if you are a child of God, born, by, born again, bought by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are clean. And you no longer carry that junk anymore. And you don't need to worry about what others think because your Father smiles on you. Now, yes, you may offer Him dandelions, And in everyone else's estimation, that's not worth anything. But that's okay, because he's your loving father. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to take that dandelion, and he's going to get a crystal vase, and put it in the front center of this altar place, and sit it there and say, I got that from my child. Isn't that a beautiful flower I got from my child? I love my child, and that tells me how much my child loves me. And that is very valuable to me. That's the relationship that we have. We do not have to say, oh God, I'm not worthy. Because we are. We were worth it. If we weren't worth it, Jesus never would have died on the cross. And we need to walk in that. John chapter 8 verse 36 says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And you need to walk in that freedom, thus says the Lord.